Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the council of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are his deeds and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works, giving them the lands of the other nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They established forever and ever, enacted in faithfulness and uprightness. He provided redemption for his people. He ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. Thanks, Jess. That over to you, Rob. Yeah, thanks, Jess, um, for reading that out uh, for us. Um, I found this a bit of a strange psalm uh, to begin with, because um, it throws a load of kind of the normal psalm crazy stuff at you, and then wraps up uh, with a phrase that took me a little bit by surprise. You know, we're all used to the the idea that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom as kind of a platitude that appears throughout the Proverbs. Um, but to find it in this context, um, it just took me a little bit by surprise. I understand why all the things in the first half are praiseworthy. You know, God's work is full of splendor and majesty. He is gracious and merciful. He does provide for us and remember, our, and remember his promises. Um, but I wasn't expecting all of that to be summed up with a cool, uh, to fear him and fear isn't something we seem to talk about often it's certainly not something we like to talk about in the context of fearing our father god um, for most of us we would like to sit in verses like 2 timothy 1 uh, 7 you know it says for god gave us a spirit not of fear but of power love and self-control and then we like to go kind of nowhere else yet the whole of scripture both old and new is emphatic uh, fearing God is a fundamental instruction for the believer. I'm going to read two verses, one Old Testament, one New Testament. And then we're going to re just remember these because we'll, we'll mention them again uh, nearer the end. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, 24 says, The Lord commanded us to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival. And 1 Peter 2, uh, 17 is like a, he's just summing up his letter with, the four, with four commandments. You know, Honour everyone love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Um, these can be hard verses for us. Uh, few of us think of fear as a positive emotion. You know, the things we fear are normally things we want to stay away from or things that are damaging to us. Even more vexingly, perhaps, um, the people that we fear are normally those that aren't trustworthy, um, that have let us down, or uh, for some of us, people that have been physically or emotionally abusive. Um, to us. For some people listening um, this morning, I'm, I'm sure the idea of fearing your father is far too close to your experience. 
um, to be something that you would want to contemplate of God. And yet, we have to read scripture carefully and take it seriously. The expectation of believers to fear God is clear, and the consequences described for not fearing God are dire. So if we can't escape this call to fear the Lord, then what is that fear? How do we practice it as recommended at the end of the psalm? And there are two key ideas I want to get across this morning. Um, I believe they're really timely for us, uh, where we find ourselves at the moment. And I hope they speak to you for, for your joy and your good. It's really not my desire that we would walk away from here crippled with, with terror. Um, the first uh, idea is this, that actually the things that make us fear God are the same things that make him trustworthy. Or, you know, you could put it the other way around. You know, we can trust God because there are things about him that are frightening. You know, ultimately, if you don't fear God, you'll probably find it hard to trust him, especially when the going gets tough. Um, the Bible is clear about some, of the, some attributes of God, and one of them is that he's all-powerful. You know, he can do anything. Or turn it around, nothing can stop God from acting. You know, uh, Job 42 verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God is also all-knowing. He's aware of the past, present, and future, from our big picture stuff right down to minutiae, like exactly which of your numbered hairs fell out when you brushed your hair this morning. And he even knows which of your numbered hairs will fall out when, if you brush your hair tomorrow morning. These are wonderful truths for us. And they're actually the foundation of our trust in God. Would you trust the God who got taken by surprise or didn't realize that you needed him to act on your behalf? Or what if God's offer of salvation was conditional on you not surprising him with some particularly awful sin in your future? Would you trust the God that could solve some problems and not others? Or what if God was limited in who he was allowed to extend mercy to? God is trustworthy. His promises are secure because he's all-knowing and all-powerful. But rightly understood, these are also terrifying truths. If nothing can constrain God, then I certainly can't. Or if God knows more, more deeply than I do, then he's going to act in ways regardless of whether I understand them. You know, just before all this kicked off, Amy surprised me with a trip to Iceland. It was wonderful. And looking back now, like I'm even more thankful uh, that, we were able, <coughs> that we were able to go and had that time um, together. But on the second day of our trip, uh, we went out to visit this glacier. And the glacier was very impressive, but it's not important for, for the story. As our tour was ending... Um, our guide mentioned in passing, look, if you're going back towards Reykjavik, you probably want to leave now because there's a storm on the way and I've heard they might close the road. Now, we weren't going as far as Reykjavik, which was about 280 miles away, um, but we were heading in that direction uh, and we had a 150-mile journey ahead of us and so we hit the road. You know, the first 130 miles we made in really good time. Uh, the weather was clear, visibility was good, the wind was low. But as we got closer to our hotel, the wind started to pick up and our pace got slower and slower. It was very weird weather. To be clear, it wasn't actually snowing. If you looked up, um, you could see clear sky, but the wind was strong. It was just picking up all the powder off the hills and throwing it um, sideways across the road. Now, in Iceland, they're well prepared for this sort of weather. And on the sides of the road, they have these bright yellow markers, that space every 10 metres or something. And at first, you could see the road, you couldn't, and, then, and then you couldn't see the road, but you could see these markers. And then you could only just about see the next marker in front of you. And then it got to the point where you couldn't see the next marker in front of you, but you could just about make out the, the, the blinking um, 
hazard lights of the car in front of you. But eventually we got to a point where even though we were only a meter and a half or so behind the car in front of us, we couldn't see the flashing, head, the, the flashing hazard lights um, at all. And eventually we just had to stop. You know, after 140 miles, we had to stop about four miles away um, from, our, from our hotel. This is you know, like six in the evening, so it's starting to, starting to get dark. Um, we sat there with 140 kilometer an hour winds, I found out later, shaking the car and snow piling up around our wheels for an hour before this very bedraggled police officer came and banged on the window and told us to turn around and try and go back to the last town. You know, my heart sank. The last town, the town called Vic, was about 10 miles back in the wrong direction. Uh, and it was on the other side of a mountain. You know, I was in full panic mode. I had no idea how I was going to turn around this car, let alone crawl 10 miles back along a road with zero visibility. And even if I somehow succeeded, we would probably be stranded and miss our appointments in Reykjavik um, the next day. You know, at some point, I remember praying to God, God, I want two things. I want to wake up in my hotel room tomorrow and at this point, I just really don't want to drive to have to get there. Um, miraculously, those two things both happened, but not before the car ended up in a ditch. I got soaked to the skin trying to find someone to tell, and we had to sit in it for seven hours um, before being dug out by search and rescue volunteers in the early hour of the morning. I think, um, I think Dave has a, a video, which if he just puts on, you can kind of see the predicament we're in. Uh, don't put the sound on, because I'll, I'll keep talking, um, yeah, but for your interest. Um, all through that experience, I remember being hyper aware of my absolute powerlessness in the face of the weather. Yeah. It didn't matter that I was only a few miles away. I might as well have been in a different country. There was just no way I was ever going to get back that evening. And if I was that powerless before the storm, how much more powerless was I before the God who commanded the wind had imagined the rain and knew every single snowflake individually? While God did protect us through that storm, he didn't calm it for us. But we do have a story uh, in scripture of when God shows, does show his power over the elements. Um, Mark 4, 37 to 41 says, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, our God is the God who can say, Chill out to a storm and make it stop. But then if you look at the disciples' response, while they were obviously scared before, it's only when Jesus calmed the storm that they're filled with great fear. And that's exactly right. When I was in that car being rapidly buried alive, a God with either no knowledge of my predicament or no power to act would have no comfort to me. But the alternative is the God who knew the storm, ordained the storm, had already set the limits of the storm, you know, had told it where it could go and where it couldn't go, and had decided what, what of it to constrain and what of it to release. The alternative, the, the alternative is the God who acts powerfully of his own free will in ways we have no control over and don't always understand. That's wonderful, but it's also right that we should fear that God. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38 um, confirms this. You know, it says, Who has spoken and it come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? 
Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? This might seem very heavy, but I think it's really important that we get this, especially where we find ourselves. We have to live in a culture that thinks it has things under control. We expect to be able to master any challenge that comes at us, and sometimes we just can't. Coronavirus is a parable for us. You know, we're seeing now a load of rage against governments all around the world because years of prosperity have let us sleepwalk into this belief that if our systems are good enough, no one needs to suffer. You know, our security is because of our good financial management or our NHS or our social security system or our military. We expect our systems to be all powerful in the face of any problem. And if they're not, it's someone else's fault. But we're not, and our systems are not, all-powerful. Only God is all-powerful. You know, two decades of internet access have let us sleepwalk into our idolizing of our ability to know things. We expect to have the answer for every question and quickly. We think that a quick Google search might tell us the right, the right answer to when to lock down or ease lockdown or open schools or close the manufacturing sector. Even if we recognize that the answers are complicated, Many of us still expect those answers to exist. How great would it be if there was a right answer for exactly how and when to lock down to stop coronavirus that would result in minimal suffering? But that answer doesn't exist yet. Only God knows the end from the beginning. We can only guess. We are not, and nor are our clever philosophies or scientific methods, all-knowing. Only God is all-knowing. When I preached on Exodus, what seemed like a whole world ago, we looked at the Israelites traveling to Rephidim, and they found no water there. I asked us the question, you know, did God know there was no water in Rephidim when he commanded his people to go there? For a lot of us, this season probably feels like Rephidim, a place where there is just no water. But God has brought us here. It's no accident that you are here. God is not surprised by the global pandemic. Even more, coronavirus has not exceeded the limits God set for it. It cannot pluck people out of God's hand. It is not some renegade that can act outside the will, authority, power, or knowledge of God. That's both terrifying and wonderful. Why would I find that wonderful? I am keenly aware you know, that I've pressed really hard on the knowledge and power of God. And I hope I've made clear that with, why, without those, God can't really be trustworthy. But power and knowledge are not enough for us to trust God. We need to learn how to fear God while resting in his love for us. You know, a few minutes ago, I quoted from Lamentations 3 about how both good and bad come from uh, the mouth of the Lord and only God can command things. But let me read the same verse in its wider context. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict man from his heart or grieve the children of men. 
to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, or to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, or to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it come to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? God, while being all-powerful and all-knowing, is also loving. And it's this love that completes the puzzle for us. Belief in God's perfect love casts out the fear that we should rightly hold for him. Why would we believe in God's love for us, even though he may cause us grief or other suffering? Our God is the God who suffers with us, even suffers for us, when we neither deserved it nor asked for it. This is why uh, the psalmist sings the praises for the God that he fears. Because with God's power and knowledge, there is also goodness, mercy and faithfulness. There's a difference between fearing something that is against you and fearing something that's for you. In Star Wars Episode One, you know, the one where Jar Jar Binks uh, features very heavily, um, there's a scene where they're going somewhere in a submarine, I can't remember where, and they're being chased by this massive fish that's trying to eat them. Then right at the end of the sequence, a bigger fish comes along and it just swallows the one chasing them. Obi-Wan, Anakin and Jar Jar, especially Jar Jar, were terrified of the big fish. When the bigger fish ate it, they didn't turn around and taunt the bigger fish just because it had done something good for them. They still feared the bigger fish. But, you know, God is the biggest fish. He is for you and not against you. But he's still terrifying. And it's this way that we land on my second key idea. You know, the fear of God is what can liberate us from the fear of everything else. And that's then the root of wisdom. Now, there are lots of things to be afraid of in this world, especially at the moment. Many of us have very rational fears. What if I get sick? What if my parents or grandparents get sick? What if I lose my job? What about my pension? What will my very health-conscious friends think of me if I keep volunteering at food bank despite the risk to my personal health? These are all real fears, and I'm not minimizing them at all. But we must not fear them more than we fear the Lord. Fearing these things above God hands them too much power, and that takes away our freedom. Fearing things that you cannot trust are for you is crippling. It robs us of our joy and hope. It also causes us to live foolishly. You know, God has not given the instructions he's given only for when things are going well. Our Father's will is good for us. His instructions are given to us that we might live joyful, effective, love-filled, eternal lives. He wants us to be like the first taste of a per totally perfected and recreated world. To live wisely, then, we must have a fear of the Lord that is more powerful than our fears for other things. He is sovereign, powerful, wise, glorious, and he is for us. It is better that we fear him. God didn't give a command to be generous, for coronavirus to take him by surprise. He's not up in heaven thinking, oh, whoops, you know what, I wasn't anticipating this. Being generous is a bad idea at the moment, guys. If we fear things more than we fear God, we'll submit our actions to them rather than to him. If we fear loneliness more than we fear God, we'll choose friends and partners that are not good for us, that may lead us away from the Lord and cause us pain in the long run. If we fear poverty more than we fear the Lord, we'll be led to use unjust or dishonest means to try and get money and security. We might just become stingy. But know that while God isn't against you, God is against injustice and dishonesty and stinginess. No, we must subject our fears to the fear of the Lord to continue to walk in wisdom. You know what? I am concerned about my job security. But I also know that the Lord is powerful and all-knowing. 
I know his commandment to be generous. So even though I don't have the power to guarantee my job, I don't know how long, I don't know how long this situation is going to go on for. But out of fear and love for my Father God, I will continue to forgive because that's what he's commanded. Now, you don't know this yet, so I'm going to tease you. But while I was writing this, I heard about the total that we've raised through Give Big, and I was just blown away. But it shows that among our family, we've rejected fear of worldly circumstances in favour of fear of the Lord and love of the brotherhood. You know, both those things that, we could, that were commanded of us from that verse in 1 Peter. So as the psalmist says, you know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because it liberates us from our fears that would lead us to act foolishly. At the moment, the world does not need more fools. We need to live wisely. We need to display the wisdom of God for our good and for the good of everyone around it. As that Deuteronomy verse put it, we need to fear the Lord for our good always and for our survival. So I really hope that when you think of your fear of the Lord, you can now remember these two big ideas. The thing that makes God scary are the things that make him trustworthy. And that the fear of the Lord is what liberates us from the fear of everything else. I just want to wrap up with this quote by a bloke called William D. Eisenhower. I don't know anything about him. I found it on Google, but it sums up what I've been saying well. So I'm just going to wrap up with this. Unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are all temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. As I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an enormous threat to my ego, but not to me. He breaks my delusions to rescue me from them so that he may reveal the truth that sets me free. He casts me down only to lift me up higher again. He sits in judgment of my sin, but forgives me nonetheless. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but love from the Lord is its completion.